Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. This month, December 2023, we're rolling out our new series titled Connections, Role, and Effectiveness. We're going to have nine uh, top connection strategy leads from U.S. agencies. We're going to be producing uh, three episodes in a, in a panel discussion format like we've done in the past. So we'll have three, uh, three guests for each of the three episodes. And you can look for the first one to drop, I believe, in about two weeks or so the goal is to better understand this sort of specialized practice within strategy and to tease out its um, role in elevating the performance and effectiveness of campaigns. So I wanted to thank uh, WARC for sponsoring this new series. The The WARC Awards for Effectiveness are back this year and now open for entries. You can head over to WARC.com backslash awards uh, for more details. That's W-A-R-C.com backslash awards for more details. Early bird deadline is December 12th, 2023. And final deadline is February 6th of 2024. As always, you can reach me at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com and you can download our sponsor kit on our homepage. We'd love to have you as one of our sponsors, just like work uh, in 2024. Meanwhile, here's a clip from today's episode. I mean, to make it really simple, there are functional reasons you choose Snickers and there are emotional reasons you choose Snickers. What we wanted to do is make sure that we were creating a space and open the aperture to allow both of those things to thrive and provide different reasons for maybe you just need a Snickers. And I think that's been the beauty of, but never forgetting the heart of it started with hunger. So we still keep that in our mix. That's Rankin Carroll, Chief Brand Officer for Mars Wrigley. He and James Miller, Global Chief Strategy Officer for Mars and PepsiCo at BBDO, share a retrospective on their 15 years working together on Snickers. This is a campaign that we, you know, we all know will be talked about uh, for decades. It's truly iconic. And uh, I think we all feel we know it. And at first, I wasn't sort of convinced that I should do a show on this because I felt like the story had been told. But I quickly realized that the full story hadn't, in fact, been told. And on this show is where I wanted that to happen. So I've learned a bunch of stuff from talking to these guys, and I hope that you'll get as much from it as I got from listening to it. So here's my uh, recording it. So here's my conversation with Rankin Carroll and James Miller. And um, as always, you can see all of the work and and. And there's so much great work that we're going to put up on the website uh, from Snickers over the last uh, you know 15 or so years. So it's well worth checking it out. Uh, you can see it all on our site at onstrategyshowcase.com. So this is Snickers. Enjoy. I'm thrilled uh, to have you here, Rankin. Welcome. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you, Fergus. It's uh, been my my life's ambition to join you on this podcast. <laughs> and uh, you told me I was supposed to say that, so I thought I would. But uh, no, listen, it's it's great to be with you. I really have enjoyed over the years uh, listening, listening in, and all my all my planning friends tell me this is the place to be. So I'm honored to be here. I think you've you've probably given at least me a lot more credit than I deserve. But um, but great to be here. Thank you, man. And we're we have James Miller. James, thanks for uh, helping set this all up. Well, it, it, like Rankin, it is an honor. I, I'm one of his planning friends who told him that he should definitely do this. So it is a, it, it's, it's a delight to be here to talk to you about it. About it. Thank you both. Um, so let's let's dive in, Rankin. Um, hopefully, my head cold here will uh, 
will stand up to this conversation and I'll be able to keep it together. But I wanted to ask you this to start this off. How would you define the type of strategy that PBDO provides for you guys? What do you rely on them for strategically? In terms of what we rely on them for strategically, you know, I would say it's really about brand uh, definition, brand narrative, brand architecture um, at the most strategic level. Uh, designing for archetypal branding um, and, and giving shape to the, the stories uh, that we want to tell on our brand. So um, they're a strategic partner, a business partner, um, and a long-term partner. So do you typically, do you rely on your own uh, internal folks, uh, Rankin, to define what you might call marketing strategy? Do you bring marketing strategy to, BB, to BBDO? Or do you look to collaborate in developing that? Because that's a big question that's been coming up. That's been coming up recently. Yeah, listen, I, I think we we again. I'll come back to the word partner. So a real partnership means that they understand our business, they understand our strengths, uh, our pain points, and that they are part of the critical conversations through the year. And, and to be very honest, I think that comes and goes with different leaderships, uh, leadership groups, and leadership styles. Um, I think currently we're probably bringing them back into the conversation again and bringing them back to the ground floor. Not that they were out of it, but I just think that, you know, the, 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 the weight of their impact, um, is increasing, um, because, you know, th- this game is tough and, uh, we need all the brains we can, we can gather at the table to help us think through, not just what do we do about brands and advertising and, and communication strategy. But you know, what are the choices? You know, from a portfolio standpoint, we should be making. Where do we where do we think we need to play, and how do we want to win? Certainly, there are people in our business who are you know accountable for that. But uh, you know, clever people seek out partnerships who can give them good advice, and I think that's how we see BBDO um, working with us um, from a business partner standpoint onto a communications partner onto um, a craft and execution partner. So let's go back to when this all started. I believe it was around 2007 when when this relationship around this new platform started. How would you how would you kind of describe the state of the Snickers brand and the business prior to the launch of the new platform? I think I described it it was an unpolished jewel. Um so I mean yeah the business was healthy, it was growing at sort of 2 and 2 2 to 2.5% two but, and this is one of the things we identified early on, um, we were growing less quickly, significantly less quickly than Kit Kat. Um, and if the sort of growth trajectories continued as they were, um, we were going to lose our status as the world's biggest bar. So we sort of set that as one of our key objectives. Um, so, it, it, you know, it was fine, but it was this unpolished gem. I think from a brand perspective, the way we talked about it was it was a brand that happened to be global rather than being a truly global brand. And that was one of the big shifts we wanted to make. It had it, we had global distribution. It looked pretty consistent everywhere, but it wasn't consistent in how, how it was managed, how we talked about it, what its positioning was, et cetera. So that was one of the big shifts at that point. I think the, the other thing I would say, just in terms of the health of the business, which I think is often overlooked and actually really important is we had an amazing product to, to work with. So, I mean, in terms of health, a phenomenal product. I mean, it's in all the testing we do, it's still the best tasting product on the planet. Um, and it's still largely unchanged from its 1930s recipe. 
So, I mean, it, yeah, that was an amazing base off which to build. Um, so I think that's sort of, that's how I would start with it. And what would you, what, what would you say is the reason that its growth was not as strong as another product such as KitKat? What, what had happened? I, I might jump in and say, I, I think it's touching a little bit of James's point there, which is a lack of consistency, number one. So I think, you know, just at the time, if you went around the world, um, in terms of like brands get momentum and when brands globalize and the campaign locks and, you know, this is a good example of there's many others and, and the campaign kind of crystallizes across markets, you just start to get momentum and almost a healthy internal competition to drive, drive the machine at full, full power. And so if you went around the world at that time, if you're just doing this a little bit by memory, the U S was asking, you know, hungry, why wait? Canada was asking, maybe you're just hungry. Um, Russia was talking, telling, you know, blokes, you know, don't stop. Um, and in the UK, where I was at the time, we were, you know, teeing up Mr. T and telling the world to get some nuts. And, and you know, <laughs> it, it, it was kind of a brilliant moment in history because there was, it was almost like we were in the labs experimenting around the world with we knew we had something, as James talks about, a polished, an unpolished jewel um, that was just waiting to kind of go off. And so we had somewhat unhelpful competition and people sort of maybe not listening to each other and trying to promote their local or regional story, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes for less good reasons. But there was almost this potential energy waiting to, to get unlocked. So that was part of the answer is lack of consistency compared to, say, at the time, a Kit Kat even the look of the brand, like the, the pure branding, the, 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 the memory structures and the, the, uh, the brand design was inconsistent and not powerfully executed um, across markets. So, yeah, you had a core logo, but you had execution that was a little bit all over the shop. And that was another aspect of, of probably diluting the potential that we had. So it's interesting to hear you hear you uh, describe the various sort of let's call them for the sake of discussion taglines. I didn't realize that hunger. Uh, you you mentioned uh, hungry. Why wait? Maybe you're just hungry. Um, so hunger existed before this new platform. So hunger was always a part of the the problem solution uh, associated with the uh, brand, James. Uh, <laughs> I, I laugh because. Um, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you we basically spent 18 months debating whether it was hunger or whether it was energy. Because um, in a lot of markets, uh, so Russia, when it was actually don't stop, it was all about having energy. In Mexico, it was really focused on energy. So it was, I mean, look, it's it's a big, substantial filling bar, or it always has been. Um, and so about half the world had a positioning that was built around hunger, and the other half had a positioning that was built around energy. And one of the challenges was to bring the two together and as I say, we had some fairly heated debates across a number of different markets. And Rankin talked about leadership. Um, to his credit, the sort of the, the global brand lead at the time, um, who also happened to be running the Australian uh, confectionery business, he basically at one point sort of halted and said, look, we've had this debate. We've been going back and forth. They're two sides of the same coin. When you're hungry, you know, when, when you need energy, you're hungry. When you're hungry, you're low in energy. We can call it what we want we're playing in that space guys um and he just kind of in, in a very good way having listened to everybody kind of ended the debate it was like right we're going in the hunger direction that's where we're going folks what was the ask then was the ask to 
a stop decline? Was the ask to increase growth? Was it was the ask for global consistency? What was it when you wanted everybody to sort of take a second look? I think there was a decision that said, we need consistency because great global brands have consistent meaning and consistent campaign um, identity and consistent you know, brand uh, visual identity. And we're going to become a great brand. We're going to become a, one of the world's best brands. And, and that was kind of a very deliberate decision that uh, Peter West, uh, who was uh, the fellow James was talking about, led us to. And I, I just remember a great moment as we were having a fairly crucial meeting in New York um, on this to, you know, to, to sort of get through the debate of hunger versus energy. And uh, I was in the hunger camp and I was feeling, you know, we were leaning towards hunger. It was going the right way. And it was like, it was like we we're in the UN debating like really important issues of the day, like it's yeah. about hunger or energy. Um, and everyone had their view and I just felt, you know, Peter, we're ready to go. Let's go. And I remember always saying to me, Rankin, we're close, but I still think there's unspoken no's or soft yeses in the room. And I'm not going until we get past that. And that Interesting. just certainly sucked the life out of me. And, you know, it took us another, I don't know, a couple of days to kind of make sure everyone felt heard and, and sort of move. And then, and then he sort of gingerly moved us in the direction. Anyway, I'm, I'm probably over dramatizing it, James, but that's kind of the things I remember about those debates and those, because it was dramatic at the time um, before we got to the brief. But we, out of that meeting, I think we said, this is the direction we're taking. Um, and it was kind of, let's work and together with our partners to get the brief to be crisp. I mean, James, you may want to talk about how it played out from there. Well, I, I, I think the other thing I would I would add to that, Rankin talked about momentum and sort of galvanizing the organization behind it. I think one of the real beliefs was that if we could get to a big idea, that that would unlock creativity across the system, that we could get everybody and sort of, the, in a sense, we could raise the floor and raise the ceiling. So I think that was absolutely part of it was let's land an idea that the whole business can get behind. Um, and so one of the very, um, we're sort of jumping around a bit, but one of the very early decisions that was made once we got to the idea was turn it loose, send it out to the markets and let them produce their own versions of this idea so that everybody feels ownership of it. And again, that was a, that was a very deliberate decision. We didn't try and go right to sort of global ads or anything like that. Um, it was very much Take the idea, the idea is super tight, but give it to the local markets so that they can make it their own and you know, riff off local insights, local celebrities, and really kind of make it part of their culture. And that was a very deliberate decision to, to get the organization behind it. And was that was that because you needed them to have ownership uh, on a, and there was a recognition that there was some localization needed? I think I think it was it was twofold, to be honest. Um Peter had a, had a very clear view and he was, he was very good operator. He had a very clear view that if the local markets felt ownership of it, and if the local sales teams felt that they had something that they could get behind, that that conviction and commitment from the organization was worth a lot more than the efficiency he'd get from producing fewer pieces or fewer assets at that point. So it was very much a, this is a way to engage the business in it and to make everybody feel like they have ownership of it. And yeah, absolutely. There was also an element of, you know, the brands are coming from slightly different places, slightly different insights. It does work, certainly in its early days. It did work better if you had local celebrities that sort of exemplified those hunger traits in the right way in different markets. So yeah, there was absolutely benefit in in, in localization as well. 
Because we, we've yeah, had co- listen, go ahead, Reagan. I was going to say I, I think the what James is articulating is really an, a largely an outcome of our culture. We are a decentralized company where the general manager in the local market uh, rightly has a very loud and uh, l- loud voice, and and, the, and therefore the local marketer and the local marketing director. Um, and we believe that that as a company that we are better to. Yes, we have some central functions that bring you know excellence in their craft to what they do or in their 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 area of expertise, but we do believe that we do better when we, if we can unlock that dis- in a disciplined way, to allow um, local markets to to do what James is talking about. I think the other thing I would reflect on is when you have an idea that is so deeply humanized. So yes, we were around hunger prior to this. But until the team, the creative team, came back and said, this is so, such a visceral, simple thing that every single human being on the earth recognizes that when you have not eaten correctly, you get irritated, you get hangry. And that concept was so fundamental and so, I guess, human that when you let it out in the world um, with a little bit of you know guidance, it didn't. They didn't mess it up, right? They actually made it really, really sing. They made it brilliant and they made it local. And, um, but the idea still was true. And it, it, it was one of the, it was a beautiful thing about, and that's why to me, it's such a smart idea that the guys came up with at the time. So James, my understanding from reading some background is that you always had, uh, you had young men as your target and that the tone of the work was sort of, um, almost like frat humor or bro humor, or there was a very sort of a young male humor to it. Uh, tell me how you evolved that target and why. Yep. Yeah, uh, so you're right. In a lot of markets, in fact, in most markets, the the audience was quite um, sort of young male. And what's interesting is if you look at the history of the brand, actually, it had started, out, if you go back to like 60s, 70s, 80s, it had actually started out really mass. And over time, the, the the focus had narrowed, narrowed, narrowed down to young blokes to the point that we were running. I mean, <laughs> I remember we ran a, an incredibly amazing uh, skateboarding campaign in the UK in about 2007 um, that literally reached the 10,000 dudes who visited seven skate parks in the UK. Um, so it had gotten really, really narrow and really, really focused, but nobody else saw it, which wasn't so creatively brilliant, but not really doing great things for the business. So one of the things that we did as we as we looked to evolve this campaign, Rankin touched on earlier, we looked into archetypal storytelling and we got really clear on the story that we wanted to tell for Snickers. And what we realized was that young dudes were absolutely the sort of the right way to tell that story, but we needed to tell the story in such a way that it had broad-based appeal. And so um, we used to talk about sort of horizontal versus vertical storytelling. That skateboarding example, very vertical. To those 10,000 people, fantastic. But if we wanted to drive growth, and you know, as, as believers in Ehrenberg Bass, we wanted to drive penetration, we needed reach. So we needed to tell that story, but in a way that could have broad-based appeal. And so I think you know, when you begin to look at some of the work, it is, I mean, beer advertising was a lot of our inspiration for this work. And I think when you begin to look at it, it, it is, yeah, it's kind of frat humor, but it's very broad, very accessible frat humor. And the way we sort of talked about it was, um, you know, whether you've been a young dude, raised a young dude, or dated a young dude, you will still be able to recognize that story because you will have some some way to sort of access it. 
And I think, you know, one of the things I've, I've read is that you said that in terms of tone and message, you said that there was kind of two simple guidelines. One was, if you wouldn't talk about it with your friends in the bar or the pub, it wasn't funny enough. And if you wouldn't talk about it with your dad or your mother, it wasn't inclusive enough. So it's, it was this idea that sort of aligns with Ehrenberg Bass, which I know you guys are um, believers in, that penetration is key to growth. Absolutely. And I, I think, you, and there was a third question actually, which was, um, if you have to work too hard at it, then it it's not simple enough um, because one of the views was that some of the work had gotten a little too clever. It was very, um, the advertising community loved it and nobody else did. So uh, yeah, we absolutely set out to make it funny and talk worthy, but also massively accessible to everybody. So I wanted to, I wanted to be, before we forged on, I wanted to make sure that we understood how you got to the platform. Can you, <laughs> did you require a lot of, of in-market research or did you feel that you guys had enough intelligence that you just needed to work through it and workshop it a little bit more? I think one of the big unlockers actually was Ehrenberg Bast and the fact that Mars invested heavily in, and I'll, I'll come on to this, but invested heavily in developing a clear philosophy on how brands and comms worked. So Yes, Ehrenberg Bass, but they also did a lot of work on archetypal storytelling, the neuroscience of how people process comms, et cetera. So there was, across the organization and certainly within that team, there was real clarity on our ambition, what we wanted to achieve. So, you know, we wanted storytelling, we wanted broad reach and fame, we wanted, you know, to drive penetration, which would drive sales uplift. And all of that kind of pushed us towards a certain type of communication, a certain type of ideas. And so a lot of what we did, to your point, there was huge amounts of knowledge and understanding of the brand within the system. So a lot of it was um, just, you know, sort of teasing it out. So yes, we did a big deep dive across the world, looking at what were the stories we had, we had told over the years when the brand was at its best, where, what were the stories that we had been telling? Because we had lots of information that told us what people liked about the brand, et cetera. And so a lot of it, I think was just working as a group to codify what the right brief was and to be clear on the direction that we wanted to go. I think what I'd add to that is this was a time of great transformation within our marketing thinking. And actually, I remember presenting this story and the work that the team had done um, on the archetype because we were training in archetypal branding to the company at, you know, uh, marketing, learning weeks, et cetera. And this, this case study in real time was being held up as, um, this is how we're going to shift. This is what it means to be building brands for, um, you know, our, as I say, archetypal storytelling that leads to broad, broadly appealing, famous stories, um, that, you know, are starting to compete with, you know, you know, movie vehicles in terms of fame, in terms of talkability. And I just, that was just something that we'd not really uh, leaned into as a company. So, so, I mean, it was, a, it was interesting because this was almost the prototype. It was not almost, it was the prototype for, for the way that Mars approached, um, uh, brand building and campaign design, uh, going forward. I think James's point around the arch uh, the archeology span and digging into our past to unlock our future was really critical, um, to the conversation. The other thing I would say is we were at the time pretty committed to pre-testing. Um, and what was interesting about that is that whilst, you know, 
whatever you think of pre-testing as an approach, when we, we've since moved on from that, we do things a little bit differently now, but um, this work tended to make it through all of those gauntlets um, reasonably untouched because you know, I, I like to think it was because the idea was pure. The idea was so human. From an outsider's perspective, as I listen, listen to you guys, it, it seems like you, um, you were dealing with an issue of a, trying to create a consistency around the world for the brand. You were also dealing with a little bit of lagging growth versus the category. So you could then have said, okay, we need to just tweak what we're doing or evolve it somewhat. Or you could have said, we need to go back to a, a, a blank sheet of paper to rethink how we message this brand. It seems to me that you kind of went for the former where you yes. felt you had some of those key elements, Rankin, and you didn't want to mess with them. You just needed to package them in a fresh way. Well, yeah, and I think that's also part of this, the thinking that was coming through then. And there was some great converts. Bruce McCall, who is a uh, former CMO, who, who was uh, uh, leading at the, at the time, brilliant guy, one of my favorite people in marketing in, in the world, really. Um, you know, he used to tell the story of the new brand manager. The new brand manager would come in, do a little bit of research and decide we needed to change the brand, you know, uh, campaign, the brand architecture. And if they're if, on a good day, they might even change the brand design and change the packaging right? And, the, and then move on two years later and leave it to the next one to do the next version. And I think one of the things he was advocating for is guys, that is so not what we need to be doing. We need to be building on the strength and the history. I mean, we are we are literally building on the shoulders of giants. So, and this is not uh, any brand. This is Snickers, which has some rich history. Um, so, let's not be foolish and foolhardy. I'd say we respect the past. We studied it, and then we tried to build on it and make it relevant for the future and the 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 mass audience that we are trying to appeal to and entertain. Um, which is, you know, what some of the work seems to have succeeded in doing. So I think, there, I think there was also, sorry, I, I think there was also a real, and, you know, as, as Rankin says, there was massive organizational change within Mars at the time and Bruce and, and Jane Wakeley and Westin all were driving, you know, massive change through the organization. And I think there was a real recognition of the power of creativity. So one of the things that actually happened um, that doesn't get talked about a lot is once we got to the global brief, um, two markets initially developed work off that global brief and uh, they ticked every box strategically. Um, they were fine, but they dis just didn't have the magic. And we all sat down as a, as a group and it was, I have to say, one of the best client meetings I've ever been in. So we all sat down as a group and basically said, look, the work we've done so far is fine, but frankly, we haven't worked this hard as a global team to get to where we are to settle for fine. Um, what this brand deserves what this team wants is world-class creativity. So we spent a lot of time really making sure that we were clear on what that looked like, what our real creative ambition was, so that when we went and the, the, as it happened, the next agency that was getting briefed was BBDO New York, we were really clear on the kind of work we wanted and the creative ambition that we had. So, you know, when we, when we sat down with the teams and sat down with Lubars, it was really clear that we were swinging for the fences. Did the platform come out of New York in terms of, of you're not you when you're hungry? Was that a part of the brief or did that come out of uh, concept development with David Lubars and his team? 
So, um, <laughs> so the, the platform did ultimately come out of BBDI New York. Um, and I think, I like to think we did two things uh, really well. The US is a critically important uh, market for the business. I think it was about 40% of the business at the time. So the one thing we said to them to kind of take some of the pressure off was we want an amazing campaign for the US. If it happens that it will travel, that will be great. But don't clutter your heads with having to worry about all the different global nuances and things that might have to happen in China, Russia, et cetera. Just focus on getting to the best work for the US. Given all the work that we had done to get alignment around the globe and given what we knew about the state of the brand, we were pretty confident that whatever they came out with, if it worked in the US, it would travel. But A, we sort of took that pressure off them. Um, and when I look back at the brief now, I can see all of the pieces in the brief that got them to you're not you when you're hungry. But that actual insight, the when you're hungry, you're a bit grumpy, you're not yourself, you're off your game, the, that insight is not in the brief. Um, that uh, Peter and Peter and John, uh, Peter Kane and John Franco Arena, who were the sort of lead creative team, they got to that through through the work, through creating it. And Lou Bars always talks about the fact that um, creative and strategy should almost be like a, a double helix that, you know, they kind of, they do need to work together. It's not a linear process that you put in some inputs and it sort of gets shifts, shifts around and that comes out. So the insight wasn't in the brief that came through creative development. So what was at the core of the brief? Uh, you, well, you've sort of talked to I me mean, that at the core of the brief was it's about young blokes. It's about belonging. It's about sort of being part of the pack. The bar is this bar of substance. It gives you sort of the energy to keep up. It's about sort of not wanting to be, the person who's who's left behind. The, the example we used to talk about was um, on a, if you go away on a stag weekend, you don't want to be the dude who goes too hard on Friday night and then just can't make it out on Saturday night because you know you've, you've, you've kind of let the side down because inevitably Saturday night will be the epic night. And that was kind of the welcome to my thing. life. Yeah. <laughs> um, but so so those were sort of the and you know there were other bits in there, but those were the bits that were in the brief. Um, so as I say, it, certainly when I look at it. I can see absolutely how they got to you're not even hungry, but that sort of crisp, tight expression of the insight and the story, you know, that that's why you need to take strategy and hand it over to incredibly talented creative people because that, that's the magic that happens. Uh, only because I'm a geek about this stuff, I'm gonna dig in a little deeper. So you you had the you had sort of I'm just curious how you got to that because the process that Rankin talked about earlier about the archetypal work. You talked about the idea of a broader male audience rather than just sort of a niche uh, young male. Um, what is the difference in that brief between maybe you're just hungry, that line that existed previously, and where you wanted to take it? What were you telling creatives that you wanted to go from X to Y? X was the past. Uh, what was Y that you put on as the as the sort of uh, strategic objective? I think the brief, uh, now, I, by the way, I wasn't on this team and this part of the journey I was prior to and after, but just so I'm, but you know, I was around it and I was obviously working with lots of folks, but I think the, the, the brief was around keeping up with the pack. You know, you need energy, you, you, you need fuel to keep up with your mates as James, James has said. And part of that was a very that's where it was really about young blokes because you don't want to show up in front of your mates and just be lame you don't want to show up and that i think is what got you to i think if you ask peter and john 
that's kind of the unlock was just that idea that this isn't just simply about hunger. It's about if you're not your full, if you're, if you're hungry, you're not your full, like we didn't say that in the brief, but the idea was if you're trying to keep up with the guys, yeah. well, a key part of keeping up is being the guy you want to be. And I think that's where they started to play with it a little bit and brought it back to something very human. I don't think I'm, I'm not sure if I explained that very well, but I think no, no, that, that's to great. Me that's is, great. that to me is what is in the brief that unlocked them to actually add the layer and the nuance that says, actually, this is a very human reality of you're, you're not you, you're not yourself. You're not the guy you want to be. And that is really about, you're not keep you won't keep up with the guys and play your role in the pack uh, if you're hungry. So I'm, I'm, and, uh, Sorry, James. Just, I don't know if that resonates, but that's kind of yeah, how no, I played. That's always how I played in my mind. Absolutely resonates, and I think just just to use the sort of cultural references of the time, when you, when you look at that brief, you could have executed it with a sort of jackass humor that would have had enormous appeal to fifteen to eighteen year old boys, but parents would have looked and gone, no, 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 no. So you could have done it with jackass humor. What we said was, no, no, we want that same sort of story, but more in sort of Seth Rogen humor, much broader appeal. So you know, so that. You can, everybody will happily sit down and watch it and you can watch it with your, your mom and she's not going to leave the room. So I think it's just really being clear on the frame and how you're trying to tell it. And, and just because we're all geeking out, I just think I take it a little further and say, I think that's the brilliance of the creative team yeah. because there was a hundred brands going, you got to keep up with the guys. What does that look like in comms? Well, it looks like the same in every bloody brand. It becomes quite boring quite quickly. And what I think they were so clever in doing is saying, we're not going to do that. We're going to find something that's quite visceral, that is, it, it's rooted in the same space, but the way the stories will be told and the kind of stories we tell will just be so much more interesting, so much more entertaining, um, and just and, and not like every other brand that's out there helping young guys keep up. So the, the early work comes out of New York. Um, what what is that early work? Is it the work that gets produced? Does that come out of the out of the um, out of the gates right away, or is there some evolution over time, James? Literally, Betty. So we we presented three campaigns off the brief. I I I honestly can't remember the other two. Um, but Betty White and Aretha Franklin, which was the second ad, um, were so two good. of the scripts. Were two of the scripts that were presented. What is your deal, oh, man? Oh, come on, man. You've been riding me all day. Mike, you're playing like Betty White out there. That's not what your girlfriend said. Oh. Baby! Oh, Eat a Snickers. Better? Better. Hi! Come on, man! That hurt. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Can we turn the AC up? I'm dying back here. It's on. Can't you feel it? Can you feel that? Oh. <laughs> Jeff, eat a Snickers, please. Why? Every time you get hungry, you turn into a diva. Just eat it so Ooh. we can all coexist. Turn into in a diva. Mm -hmm. Put in your system, break your pants. Okay. Thank you. Better? Better. Will you get your knees out of the back of my seat? <laughs> you're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Holy crap, man. I can just imagine that. I would hope at least that there was like, that's it in the room. I mean, did, was it immediately this gravitational pull towards this or was it, how was it received initially? 
So it, it, it's funny you say that. Um, it was um, not to take anything away from the entire uh, team. It was the easiest sell in history. I mean, I said, <laughs> we, 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 we'd invest, well, no, we'd, we'd invested a lot of time, as I said, sort of early on in, in getting everybody clear on what the ambition was, what success looked like, the kind of thing that we were looking for. And as you say, literally everyone went, that's it. It's that one. That's the thing. That's what we've been looking for. Um, so in, in that sense, it was a really, really easy sell. I think one of the funny things I love, I always love talking to David about anything really, but w w he always talks about when, uh, around other work and, you know, how this idea was percolating. And then he sort of said, well, well, it's going to be on the Super Bowl. I said, I said, I said, we should make something about football then, shouldn't we? So, so yeah. honestly, it, it was just, I, there was various ideas percolating and then they just said, well, we got to make something to do with football. And that's kind of the genesis of Betty White. Rankin talked earlier about and I, you know the importance of momentum. Um, I mean, as, as Rankin said, the social media environment back then is not what it is today. But um, we we talk about the fact that Betty White went from a thirty second TV spot, admittedly in the Super Bowl, but to ninety one days of of press coverage because th there was this latent love for Betty that just exploded. And I mean, she was on Oprah, she was on Ellen, she was on Larry King. I mean, she was ultimately culminating in, you know, being invited to host Saturday Night Live all off the back of that Super Bowl ad. And obviously- That's true, deep, yeah. Deep, deep love for Betty. Um, and, but that just built momentum. Everybody's like, oh my God, this, this thing is really running. This thing has got real energy behind it. And that galvanizes the business. And I mean, just to put some numbers on it, because so Rankin's yeah. right. With, I think within year one, we had 50% of the markets running the campaign. And within two years, as you said, it was basically 100%. And we basically went from what was about 2%, uh, a global growth rate of about 2% to more than 15% in two years. So we went from so we went from a point where KitKat was growing three times faster than we were to a point where actually we were growing twice as fast as KitKat. And, you know, it, it, all within two years. I mean, fi the, any business in the world that's, you know, 75 years old, would kill for 15% growth in any given year. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it was almost instantaneous, the effect on the business. And I would just say also that in our category at that time to getting, we're, we're in double digit growth and that's just not something mm -hmm. that was, you know, without some kind of hyper price, you know, uh, impact, it was just the, the run of the business value, value-based growth or, or volume-based growth rather um, it, what I remember is 10%, you know, growth and, and maybe slightly above that. So we certainly protected our position, um, and got to number one, stayed at number one and, and just went, grew at levels we weren't seeing and consistent. We're doing that pretty consistently for a few years running. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it is the story of the power of the idea the power of an original freshly fresh presentation of a deeply visceral and deeply human insight. Um, I would say that to James's point, what was um, the discipline was around the idea, not around the execution. And so we were relentless about distrib distributing the idea and the guidelines for the idea. But then you had markets creating everything from, you know, what the fuck Ronaldo, which to me is one of the great spots in the campaign where, you know, Ronaldo, the great Brazilian superstar, hasn't had an, enough to eat and hasn't had a Snickers. So he decides that he's going to cheer for Argentina, which <laughs> if, if you know anything about football culture in South America, that is like, you know, <laughs> that is the devil's work. That is the devil's work, literally.
E gol da Argentina. Você fica confuso quando está com fome. Snickers, uma barra de chocolate, amendoim e caramelo que mata sua fome. So I think what we understood a little bit about is, in that respect, it became deeply cultural. Um, and it allowed cultures, you know, playing on a human insight, but to, to tell the story in their way that was most relevant to them. Um, it wasn't just about celebrities. So we're 15 or 16 years into this now. Has it, has it strategically uh, evolved? Has there been sort of an evolution? And, and if so, what? Over the years. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll touch on it and maybe James can fill in a bit. I, I think we, we, you know, this category, the chocolate category has got, you know, big spaces and big moments and big brands need to, to play across those. And just to kind of keep it simple in terms of language, there's an element of the chocolate category we call recharge, which is where you'd find things like energy and hunger satisfaction, which is the game that we play and we continue to play. There's also an element of reward and a little bit more fulfilling and sort of languid experiences and, and delightful, rewarding, you know, um, experiences in chocolate. Well, Snickers is a big brand has tried to sort of explore that. And we kind of got stuck in this conundrum of, you know, they're not really hunger moments. How do we play that? And we sort of started playing around an idea that was a little bit more malleable around for whatever is causing you to be off your game. It could be hunger, could be confusion, could be distraction, could be any number of things. There's other ways in that don't necessarily play into what the demand space that is exclusively about charging you up when you are hungry. And we just got into the simple idea of maybe you just need a Snickers. Um, now, the purists would debate that, but we found it to be a, a, a smart opening for us that's allowed the brand to still be inclusive of hunger and allow us to execute against the hunger, hunger brief that we have for so long so successfully. But I think we've also opened it up um, we, as to quote, we've opened the aperture um, of the campaign to be a little bit more uh, inclusive um, of some other chocolate moments, let's say, without, I don't think, um, bastardizing the campaign. Uh, what's, what's, what, sure. would be, what would be, an, is there a spot that comes to mind that we could drop in that would be more sort of reflective of that reward versus the recharge? Yeah, I well, it's less about purely the reward. It's just more about different reasons that, you know, you might have you might be forgetful that has nothing to do with hunger. You might be a bit confused, um, for, for different reasons. And, um, but yeah, I mean, there, some of the more recent work where, um, whether it's the zoom spot after COVID where the guy shows up in his, uh, it's a pretty simple spot. He shows up for what he thought was a zoom call. And it's actually the first live meeting after COVID. Well, he's dressed for a zoom call, which includes his underwear. And, you know, maybe he just needs a Snickers. So good to see you guys. Han out here. Are we on yet? Oh. I thought we were doing a Zoom thing. Confused? No. Maybe you just need a Snickers. Well, so I think in the, so some of the different evolutions. So I, th I think in the U.S., um, over the years, we've evolved the storytelling a little bit. So it's it's no longer um, about sort of transformation. Um, and we, and there's a there's a great, uh, a great, uh, ad, I can't remember what we call it, but it's basically a surgeon who has inadvertently left his mobile phone inside uh, the patient post-surgery. That was so good, man. So good. And so exactly the same idea, different execution of it. So I think we've, you know, to keep things fresh, to keep things interesting in, in certain markets, we have absolutely evolved how we execute the idea and how it comes to life. But as Rankin says, I think the core idea is still very, very strong and very much alive. And that, you know, that, that insight is universal and doesn't go away. 
what we've had to do is find ways to stretch it so that, you know, as, as Rang said, the bar can and the product can play in a lot of the different areas where, you know, people don't just eat chocolate bars because they're hungry. They eat them for lots of different reasons. And we need to make that accessible to as many people as we can. I mean, to make it really simple, there are functional reasons you choose Snickers and there are emotional reasons you choose Snickers. What we wanted to do is make sure that we were creating a space and open the aperture to allow both of those things to thrive and provide different reasons for maybe you just need a Snickers. And I think that's been the beauty of, but never forgetting the heart of it started with hunger. So we still keep that in our mix. And, and it's funny, the, the last point I would make is it, it, one of the things I do love about this campaign is that so many talented people around the world, <laughs> planners, creatives, clients over this period of time, have taken it and made it their own and played with it. So, you know, I love that there's brilliant Snickers work that's come out of LMAP, come out of Clevenger, come out of Impact, AMV, you know, BBDO China, Japan, India, you know, I could go on and obviously mm -hmm. New York. Um, and I just, I I love that that it is an idea that is so compelling that everybody around the world just wants to pick it up and play with it and build on that. And I think that's, you know, incredibly powerful in terms of trying to galvanize a, a, a global brand. But, you know, in truth, trying to galvanize a, a global agency who, you know, quite often want to do their own thing. Um, and so I think, you know, just the power of the idea to really unite people and get everybody sort of firing all creative cylinders is, I think, one of the great legacies of it. It's really set the standard. Um, it, certainly within Mars Wrigley. Uh, and dare I say, you know, in my, my segment mates may, may be displeased, but I think it's also set a standard and again, other people's work, not mine, it set a standard for Mars Incorporated in terms of an idea uh, and the power of creativity and the power of an idea to travel and, and drive business impact um, and the discipline that's required to, to, keep, it, to keep it firing. Um, so, yeah. It is Rankin Carroll, Chief Brand Officer for Mars Wrigley, and James Miller, BBDO, Global Chief Strategy Officer on Mars and PepsiCo. Thank you both for a great conversation and for wonderful, inspiring work. Thanks, Fergus. Thanks very much. Great to uh, spend some time with you. And we will see everyone on the next episode.